Welcome to another exciting episode of NIDS Knowledge, this one being Real Space Strategy Edition. This podcast is produced by the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. Each week, we will inform you about the latest in space strategy and its importance to our national defense. In today's media-saturated world, it has become more important than ever to understand the impact that strategic communications have upon military strategy and policy. For example, communications are one of the key pieces of deterrence where a threat and the will to execute upon that threat must be communicated to an adversary. What some don't realize is that while communicating through diplomatic channels and through military demonstrations are very important, public affairs and legislative affairs are just as important when looking at both deterrence and also recruiting personnel and gaining and sustaining public support for the military service and its mission. In this episode, we will look at Space Force public and legislative affairs. Many commentators and advocates of the service have been less than thrilled with the messaging being broadcast in all media forms, whether it be speeches at conferences, press releases, social media posts, etc. And some of these messages have even led to memes and jokes by comedians, despite numerous attempts to address those perceptions. With me today is one such commentator, Peter Garrison, Senior Fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. He is the host of their Space Strategy Podcast and is a prolific writer and speaker on space operations, the space economy, and the Space Force. And as we always say, uh, the views expressed by the host and the guest are of their own and do not reflect those of the U.S. government or their employer. With that, welcome, Peter. Thank you so much, Chris. Awesome. So let me begin by reading a few things you have written in recent editorials over the past few months as a way to kick off our discussion today. With regards to public relations or communication in the Space Force, you said, quote, the Space Force must be able to tell the military space story. It needs to be able to create allies and supporters within the American electorate and reinforce efforts by the service to reinforce and communicate its message. It also needs to be an integral part of shaping the operational environment, which includes allies, adversaries, and private industry, something a public affairs capability subservient to the Air Force simply can't accomplish. So for the listeners that may not be familiar with the editorial, in in this editorial you were advocating for the Space Force to have their own public affairs shop, something that Congress recently appears to agree with you on. Why do they need their own public affairs, the Space Force? And with regard to the quote I just read, why do you think that the current setup is not telling the story to the American people well? Well, you know, Chris, for me, the argument is mostly structural. So I don't think that the, that the fundamental interests of the Space Force are identical to the interests of the Department of the Air Force, nor do I think they have the same problem. And so, you know, when you think about the the needs of communication of the Space Force, they are are just establishing themselves. Their audiences are very different. You know, the the expertise to tell that story is very different. And to ask, you know, an organization that does most of its job and reports mostly to one boss who, you know, has many times the sort of the size and influence um, uh, that the Space Force has on the air side, I, I think fundamentally creates, first of all, a conflict of interest. Um, but secondly, I think it waters down the ability to create and sustain people who think of themselves 
not as public affairs people telling the Guardian story, but as guardians doing public affairs. And I think over time, that's going to result in a fundamentally different sort of message and a fundamentally different sort of ethos. Right. So, so let's, let's give you an example. Um, I think you remember one of my posts on LinkedIn recently uh, around Veterans Day included um, a commentary, a little bit of my own on, on one of their posts. So like while the Air Force was talking about, you know, all the airmen that have, you know, flown missions and sacrificed great for their country and the Navy has something similar about sailors around the world and their global presence. The Space Forces um, was basically about how a guardian after after um, serving has a great life in STEM, for example. Um, and as I saw that, I was thinking to myself, really, is this really what, what you want to do? I mean, there are so many things, it seems to me, that they could have talked about, like um, all the deployable expeditionary space control squadrons that go into harm's way and provide um, offensive and defensive counter space options uh, in theater. So it's not like they're just all, you know, sitting back in in some office somewhere, you know, pretending to, to do something while an automated spaceship is doing its business. They're actually out there in the thick of it. Um, is that one of the, the things that, that you were inferring or, or thinking about when you thought that the military story of space was not being spoken to? And if so, what what are some of the examples of things that you think they should be speaking about that they haven't? You know, for me, it's less about individual things I can point to, but more things that I hear about from guardians in the force and sort of recognizing that there's sort of this pervasive uh, effect, uh, which I think results in sort of subordinating um, and, and giving sort of a, a smaller vision of the space power and the space force than it could be. Now, in the example you gave, um, and in fact, this gets to your first question about how do I think it's it's not being told. Um, hopefully I'll segue into that. In the example you told, right, it isn't so much that there's anything wrong with talking about the Space Force as a good career path or that STEM, you know, is not important. But, you know, what we do see, you know, whether or not it's, you know, it's conscious or not is the the Space Force under the Department of the Air Force gets continually painted in a support role, you know, as support to warfighters rather than, you know, the warfighters themselves, you know, as supporting the joint force rather than their own independent strategic mission that's also important. And I think they are dissuaded from sort of waiting out and, and telling a broader story um, and in my view, the Space Force's opportunities and missions are much broader than just support to the joint force. And I think it's unlikely that within, you know, a, a secretary of the Air Force that's looking for a one team, one fight message and is telling guardians, you know, directly that, you know, your job is support, that a, a bolder, broader message is is going to come through. And I also think that you know, when you talk about like the specifics of what the Space Force is doing, is that more likely to come from somebody who's doing a tour supporting the Space Force and is otherwise thinks of themselves as a 
PA professional or an Air Force officer, or is that more likely to come from somebody who thinks of themselves as a guardian and knows all the force structure and everything that the Space Force is doing and will have to think about that over their entire career? So, you know, for me, it's less about throwing darts at specific posts or specific people in PA because I don't honestly think that the problem, it's not that we have PA people on the Air Force side that have malice. You know, it's not that they aren't wanting and trying to do a good job, you know, for the Space Force, but in the same way that within the constraints of the Air Force, we we just did not do a significant job developing, you know, space power thinking, advocacy, and doctrine until the Space Force was removed. And now in the last year, we've got tons of doctrine documents coming out. I think it's unlikely that you're going to see the kind of full-on blossoming, you know, of PA until it gets directly associated and feels themselves, not just that they're like on the support team, but that they are the Space Force telling the Space Force story. Right. So I know you mentioned the phrase that I was that I, I caught in your in your comment there is the strategic mission. Um, with with regard to a lot of the issues that the Space Force and other services are dealing with, with regard to recruiting and retention, um, I'm curious what what your thinking is on what the messaging that we've heard about being a support role and being uh, supporting the joint force and all that kind of stuff instead of the strategic mission. Do you think that focusing more on the strategic mission would be helpful for recruiting? Um, and and if so, what what types of messaging do you think would be better than what what we're seeing? So I fundamentally do. You know, I mean, when I think about myself, uh, I don't I don't personally find that message attractive. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, look they want to spend their time and talent on the biggest problems that that matter the most. And I think one of the reasons why the Space Force has enjoyed remarkably good recruiting is not because of our messaging, but despite it, that within the larger public cultural narrative, space and the Space Force has this broader idea of, you know, humanity moving out, of doing something exciting, of creating a cis-lunar economy. And I think people assume, you know, that they're going to be part of that and that they're going to be a part of building something, you know, that even on the warfighting side is novel and new and important to U.S. power. And I think that a message that supports that, that, hey, you're getting in on the ground floor of something that is, you know, to to quote uh, um, Colonel Jack Fisher, you know, a force that's going to change humanity, you know. That type of thing, I think, is going to make people excited about their jobs and excited to join and excited to stay in and go through the difficult churn of setting things up. But it's not only in recruiting, right? When we talk about the strategic message, strategic mission and strategic messaging, you know, part of what's different about the Space Force is, frankly, educating the American public that there is a lot more to space and the space domain than just keeping the lights on and being, you know, the Army Signal Corps. That's part of what's necessary as, you know, the the public messaging. 
And part of that is the resource battle. So obviously, you know, people in Congress have plussed up the Space Force budget consistently. They understand that the Space Force is vitally important to our current national interests. And they understand that the Space Force is critical, you know, to our deterrence posture and our ability to practice our form of joint war fighting. But, you know, they also are going to put capital behind vision. And if the Space Force isn't communicating a broad vision of what it can do, not just to prevent bad things from happening, but to actually help extend, you know, America's strategic end states to protect that movement of of civil and commerce out there and to enable it, you know, I personally think if I were a congressman, you know, or, or, you know, even if you're just a, you know, uh, investor or a parent, right, the idea that you are, that it's not just a mandatory must pay bill, but it's that a bill that could return significant uh, effects in the future is a big deal. And right now, I mean, the Space Force really is the example of what it's done, first of all, in GPS and creating a technology that frankly, you know, pays, you know, for the entire cost of the Space Force in its current contribution to to the economy. And if, you know, if the Space Force tags itself to the winds of the, you know, the visionaries, the captains of industry, you know, the Elon Musks and Jeff Bezos that really want to you know, create a much larger play space for humanity with much greater access to uh, resources and and energy, that's part of the zeitgeist. And that's part of the zeitgeist that I, I think the Space Force is is missing. And frankly, I don't think that that is just the fault of them not having a strategic messaging shop. I think that's, a you know, a carryover from, you know, sort of a hostile takeover, right? I, the the space force was the space force idea wasn't really grown organically you know it was it was sort of pushed upon them from outside and i don't really think that the space force has truly gotten certainly what the executive branch was thinking about in terms of this much larger role for space power so you know pa is not going to carry those messages if those messages aren't being directed to them by the leadership. But also they're very unlikely to carry those messages if it is, you know, sideways with their primary boss and has to be reconciled with a broader Air Force message with the Secretary of the Air Force that seems to want to keep it as a captured organic support force and force it into the role of, you know, the Army Signal Corps. Yeah, I, I will get to the point about uh about the executive branch and, and the leadership here in a minute, but you you had mentioned a couple of times there uh, Congress and in in one of your other editorials um, on communications you also mentioned uh, Space Force communications a need for a legislative affairs shop of their own as well as a public affairs shop I'm going to read a quick quote here and then uh, ask another quick question so you said quote space is currently getting short shrift for decades Congress has complained that of all the military service branches. The Air Force is exceptional in its poor and tardy engagement. The Space Force should not want to be saddled with this unfortunate history, nor to continue with its inertia. Rather, America's newest military branch has the opportunity to create a new culture of engagement with Congress, one that it needs to embrace if it is to secure our nation's interest in, from, and to space, end quote. So 
I I heard what you were saying basically before, kind of the why behind the the push to keep it as a support force. Uh, but similar to my first question, why do you think that that the legislative affairs, similar to the public affairs of the Air Force, is not uh, covering down on this as well as you think it should be? Um, hasn't Congress been pretty supportive of the Space Force in general over the last couple of years? I mean, they, they typically like to highlight, you know, the biggest budgets ever and and things of that sort. Um, how would you how would you respond to people who would re- who would respond like that? Well, first of all, I, you know, again, just as with you know the public affairs, I don't want to impugn the very hard efforts of our current uh, legislative liaisons that I think you know are trying their best to balance the diversity of Department of Air Force needs. And it's certainly true that that Congress you know has been very generous to the Space Force, but I'm not sure that that, any credit for that belongs to the legislative liaison. I mean, Congress has wanted, for as long as I've been interested in space, to put more money into space, but they were concerned that they couldn't trust the Air Force with that money, um, that they couldn't trust that that money that they allocated for space would go to space. Now that, you know, space controls its own budget, you know, what I think we're seeing, you know, isn't, isn't an isn't something novel. It's the pent up frustration of years finally going, you know, into the Space Force budget. Now, there are efforts right now to try to, you know, grow the size of the folks uh, on the space side. But, you know, I think it's well known that 90 some percent of the time of LL is concerned with air issues and that most of those issues are like legacy divestment issues. And that sucks the air out and sucks the initiative of what I would hope a Space Force legislative liaison would do. Now, let me point out that in my view, you know, a, a legislative liaison to, to truly advance U.S. space power has to be in league, you know, with a, a Space Force you know, general counsel, you know, JAG Corps that has an ambitious legislative agenda to create a maximum uh, breadth of authorities that the Space Force needs to pursue, you know, building advantage, building strategic advantage, you know, pursuing strategic competition. Because until and unless there is an actual war in space, the game is competitive posture. And that competitive posture really requires a range of authorities, you know, a range of things that are at the at the edge of, you know, their national security things, but they could belong to multiple different things. You know, there's what should be, you know, what new industries do you want to create? And, and you know, would you like presidential determinations for them? You know, do you want authority to, you know, create buying power for things that are going to allow an advantage in space mobility and logistics? You know, do you want a strategic propellant reserve? Do you want an in-space strategic mineral stockpile? Do you want a commodities exchange? Do you want, you know, a guard, a reserve? Do you want a, uh, you know, a civil air patrol equivalent? You know, are you going to have a civil Mm -hmm. reserve in a space fleet? Then there are all these questions about, you know, defense support to civil authorities and posse comitatus and things that, will become important in the gray zone. And so you not only need a space force that is able to educate Congress about what's going on and help them to ask important questions, which I don't, I don't think 
we're seeing a lot of forward-leaning questions about the future, but we also need a legislative liaison that can continually explain and press an ever more ambitious agenda to get the Space Force broader and broader authorities to, to pursue U.S. advantage in the space domain. Yeah, I know you and I both have have quite a few years of experience working in the Pentagon and in the legislative sphere. And one of the things I hear from you is 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 the need for a proactive legislative affairs shop and not so much a responsive. Because it seems like most of the legislative affairs shops in many of the of the locations, agencies, services, whatever, um, pretty much just try to stay out of the limelight enough to not have Congress ask them too many questions, rather than trying to lean forward, like you said, with with advocating for, hey, we need these authorities because of X, Y, and Z. And as you were mentioning, I think in our previous question or a couple questions ago is, is even when you have the a public affairs shop that's, that's ran by guardians or a legislative affairs shop ran by guardians, that, um, you know, some concerns that people have is that, yeah, so you have a new shop that's that Space Force headquarters ran, but you know, how does having their own office change the message or improve the message when you're still under the same leadership in the same department, um, whether it's Department of Defense policy, White House policy, or Air Force policy that might be restraining the message because of that uh, secretary or whoever might be steering the ship uh, policy-wise from allowing people like the Chief of Space Operations or whoever else to be proactive in those regards. And if that's really the big issue, you know, how does a new office get around that or how do we fix that uh, and make it more, more user-friendly and and more effective? Well, so first of all, I mean, it's not like I think we couldn't be doing a, a better job with the arrangement that we have now. Right. I mean, stronger, you know, directive, you know, shaping talking points from the Space Force leadership, you know, with a a clear shaping plan. Um, You know, I remember I had a mentor once in the Pentagon who said, there is no strategy without a bureaucratic strategy. And, you know, when you think about, you know, public affairs, they play a big role in, you know, shaping the public, shaping the sphere for your, for your bureaucratic strategy, for shaping the domain that concerns like, public perception and laws and international perception and all that. But in terms of like the first part of your question, what would be different? Because it might be the same people, right? So we're not really talking about changing the people, but there's a very subtle difference. Like what, what you notice is that people obey their local incentive structure. And so it's, you know, if you've got a public affairs person who is a space force person being promoted by the space force under the CSO, and they do something that the Secretary of the Air Force doesn't like, they're going to yell at the CSO. And the CSO is going to protect the PA, and it'll get negotiated at that level. If you've got Air Force PA people promoted in Air Force public affairs circles directly under the Secretary of the Air Force, they know that who they really have to not piss off is not the CSO, but the Secretary of the Air Force. Now, to those who want to see, you know, a, you know, no, no daylight between the Secretary of the Air Force and the CSO, that sounds like a 
a great story, right? And for those who want to see, you know, an absolute teamwork between the Air Force and the Space Force, that sounds like a great story. But to those of us who think that in the long run, the Space Force really does have different and occasionally opposed interests to the the larger Air Force, they fundamentally need the freedom to take their voice directly to the American people. And it needs to be decided at levels above the, the trade should not be at the level of the secretary of the air force. The trade should be, you know, above that, you know, in, in the policymakers, because, you know, let's face it, the, the, a secretary of the air force, you know, has a conflict of interest when it comes to space, the very name shows that there's a conflict of interest. And part of this problem goes back to just how the Air Force has historically thought about space. They think about space in the vertical dimension. And so space they sort of see as an extension you know, of air power, a little higher, a little faster. But most of the, you know, the consequential space power theorists don't think about space in principally in the vertical dimension, you know, they think about it more in a horizontal, you know, like archipelagic thinking about, you know, space as the movement across the Pacific in a more naval paradigm. And, and that, you know, and in a more economic support, you know, paradigm where, where the national victories, the strategy of success is not the narrow strategy of success of success in war fighting, which is important but on a daily basis, the Space Force is going to have a presence mission that enhances everyday U.S. space power. And that fundamentally is a different and irreconcilably different story with air power. So I guess the other question, based on kind of what you're saying when you mentioned the, the naval aspect, is um, a lot of people are saying that that the comparison between the Marine Corps as the small service of the Department of the Navy and the Space Force as the small service of the Department of the Air Force is that while the Marines are have their own interests, things of that sort, that they are also still a maritime service. So they both have similar interests, similar operating areas, things of that sort. Whereas in the Department of the Air Force, you've got, um, you know, an air, an air atmospheric kind of service. And you've got an exoatmospheric service. And uh, so real quick, uh, just as this was our, our last question, um, what, are, are, is the Marine Corps possibly a good example, despite those differences, of how to do messaging better uh, in a competitive um, secretarial level environment? So absolutely, right? The Marine Corps has its own legislative liaison. It has its own public affairs. And they are ridiculously successful, you know, at pushing their message, right? They, they, are, they are known for having, you know, a, a very, very clear identity in public. But you're right. I mean, what makes it fundamentally different is that the Marines are tied to the sea in their purpose for being, in their history, in, in you know, what they do. Um but, you know, the, the Department of the Air Force was only temporarily given custody of the Space Force, very clearly in SPD-4, very clearly if you talk to the folks in Congress that this is a, this is a wayward step on the path to an independent department. Now, I concur, it didn't make sense, uh, you know, right now. There's a lot of 
support that has to be built. You know, they have to get in their feet underneath them. Um, but, you know, and I'm not ruling out that it could not be that uh, that a fully empowered Space Force might might just be happy to have the Department of the Air Force or the Air Force continue those support roles if it were to grow. But the only way, in my view, in which that happens is if it is fully empowered to tell the truth about its needs, and there's no way that those needs get subordinated. So I think there are two possible trajectories, both of which require the, the Space Force to have its own LL and its own messaging. You know, the one path, you know, uh, to a to a bright future is where it gets those things. And because it's able to be loud and can't be shut up by the Department of the Air Force, it arrives at a mutually beneficial agreement where it says, yep, it's best for all of us to just stay on one team. The other is where it gets those things. And then over time, it's just like, you know, we're getting better at this. Thanks for the help until now, but we have a broader and important mission. And, you know, there's too much here for a single secretary. Um, and, and we think we can take care of our own support in order to grow. Um, and I think either of those, you know, would be good for America. What, what would be bad for America is for the broadest conception of space power to be subordinated and kept under wraps in just one department, unable to fully negotiate trades, you know, uh, between other departments and agencies, unable to take its viewpoint directly to Congress, to the American people, you know, and, and unable to articulate a message of discontent, you know, that would force you know, negotiation at a higher level. Well, with that, um, we've run out of time. So I want to say thank you, Peter, again, for joining us today. Thanks for sharing your perspectives. Thank you, Chris. It was wonderful to be here. Thank you for listening to NIDS Knowledge, Real Space Strategy. The Real Space Strategy Edition is produced under NIDS Podcasting Network, a division of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. NIDS is a 501c3 organization dependent on donations to provide this podcast and bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrence. You can catch all of our podcasts or provide feedback at thinkdeterrence.com. I want to thank our producer, Kimberly Sherrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative NIDS knowledge.